You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. First Corinthians 15 is where we're going to find ourselves today. I've been uh, in my own studies and, and looking back through the history of the church and, and sort of tracking as best as possible as to see where the church came from, from the book of Acts all the way through up to the modern age and what that looks like. It's a huge study, obviously a couple thousand years worth. But in that study, there are certain things that have presented themselves that um, have become tools for the body of Christ, the church gathered together to use to keep us in that connection and story of salvation and redemption. I've been going through and, and looking at this book. It's called The Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer. And this one that, that I have was published in 1789. The Book of Common Prayer, you're probably more familiar with it than you know in this way. There are phrases that have become sort of uh, culturally ingrained into the Christian life that we all sort of are familiar with, but perhaps we didn't know where it came from. So the Book of Common Prayer is the source of this phrase, Dearly Beloved, we are gathered here today in the sight of God to join this man and this woman together in holy matrimony. Like that traditional statement of a wedding ceremony, right? That comes from the Book of Common Prayer, right? Um, a lot of the hymns that if you grew up singing hymns at all, a lot of them come from and have their source in the Book of Common Prayer. What the Book of Common Prayer has been described as is the Bible in action. It's full of scriptural references. It's full of um, scripture being used to orchestrate and organize the gathering, the services of God's people. That's what it's been used for. So there's prayers for weddings, for funerals, for communion. There's uh, scriptural references and orders to how a service should progress. Uh, you know, all of these things are found in here. So it became sort of this manual that took the scripture, the Bible, and said, here's the truths of what we believe. Now here's how to organize those things into the gathering of God's people. That was the purpose of the Book of Common Prayer. I find it incredibly interesting. The language is old fashioned. It might be a little bit hard to focus on, but it's incredibly encouraging, again, to look at and go, that's where a lot of what we do came from in practice. So that's, that's an interesting thing. Now here's the question. As we look back through the history of the church, what's interesting to me is that the entire church, as it has been from the book of Acts all the way through modern day today, there's been one consistent theme that the entire church, the church calendar, liturgically, teachings of the church, uh, practice of the church, uh, all of those things, there's one theme that the church has centered itself around and revolved around one theme and one theme only. If we were to say, hey, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna simplify or we're going to like very succinctly say, this is what the church is about, this one theme in regard to the history of salvation, what would it be? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the absolute center of what our faith revolves around. It's the resurrection. So whereas Christmas begins to be the big deal for a lot of people culturally in our world because of the celebration, the presence, the romanticism of it, all those things, the baby in the manger, all those kinds of things, right? Christmas sort of gets a lot of that attention. 
Resurrection Sunday, Easter, is actually the primary point of focus for the church. Everything else sort of spins out and revolves from the resurrection. That's something that isn't always known, especially to people who are culturally Christian, right? Where they just show up on Easter and Christmas. They're Christian in the sense of we believe in God and our family goes to church once or twice a year, right? Christmas becomes this focus and Easter is just sort of the additional holiday or celebration. Now, the reason this is important for us to understand and what we see in the text today in 1 Corinthians 15 what Paul teaches here, why this is so incredibly important is it affects how we share the gospel with other people. It causes us to stop and consider, when I talk to someone about my faith, when I say that I'm a Christian, when I say that I go to church, or I'm, invite, I'm inviting someone to come to Bible study or to come to worship service with me, what is it that I'm sharing with them? What is it that I'm witnessing to them? What am I testifying of? That's what we're called to be as disciples of Jesus. We're called to be witnesses of what Jesus has done for us in our salvation. And we are to testify, we're to give a testimony of what's taken place in our life as a result of salvation. What is it that we are sharing with people in regard to the gospel? Are we sharing with them simply the fact that if you believe upon Jesus, you receive comfort of some kind? Are we, are we promoting things like uh, love and joy and peace and acceptance and family? Like, is that what we're pushing forward in, in, in saying, hey, this is why you should believe upon Jesus. You should believe upon Jesus because you're going to experience love like you've never had before. You're going to experience peace like you've never experienced before. Okay, yeah. That may be part of the relationship that we have with Jesus in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's love and joy and peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, all of those things that are a part of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we'll experience that. But is that what we're to be witnessing and testifying to in terms of sharing our faith and sharing the gospel? Perhaps it's, it's, it's talking about forgiveness, Everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone's a sinner. Maybe that's what we're promoting, right? Forgiveness of your sins. Freedom from the guilt of your sins. Maybe we talk about healing. Healing from pain, spiritually, emotionally, even physically. Maybe that's what we're talking to people about and testifying to. And saying, hey, if you believe upon Jesus, you get to experience freedom and healing. Maybe that's what it is. But what I think we see today is something that prioritizes itself over and above all of those other things that we do and can experience in our salvation. Take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll begin in verse 12. Let's read from verse 12 on through verse 19. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain 
and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is an incredibly um, pointed scripture. As we know, Paul's answering questions. The, the, the whole letter is in response to questions that he has been presented with. Things that are going on in the church that are causing there to be chaos and trouble and disunity. And Paul is answering back all of these questions. And here we have this accusation against those in the church or people in the church who are teaching that there is no resurrection. Now I'll remind you what we read last week. Paul proclaimed the gospel to the church again as a reminder. And he said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Right, that I that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was raised, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to say, five hundred brothers in the Lord, those who are followers of Jesus, five hundred eyewitness saw Jesus in the flesh after he rose from the grave, and after Jesus was the subject of arrest, beating, and crucifixion and burial, they saw him alive. There's no question, there's no doubt historically that what Jesus endured prior to being on the cross would have killed most people, let alone the fact that he was on the cross. Jesus died. It was, he, there's theories that have, have been you know, uh, laid out by uh, people who want to refute the truth of Scripture who say, no, Jesus didn't die, he just swooned. He, he just sort of fainted on the cross and they thought he was dead, so they took him down without breaking his legs. Baloney, that's, it's not true. Jesus died. That's just the evidence of history, not just the Bible, but historical evidence as well. You could look up uh, Flavius Josephus if you wanted to look at a, a Jewish historian who has records of those things. But hear what Paul says in chapter 15, verses 12 through 20, is that there are two primary implications at work. There's two things that we have to consider. The first thing we have to consider is what has been taught in the church at Corinth, obviously that Paul's answering, is number one, that Jesus did not raise up from the grave and is still dead. That's the first implication of what this scripture is saying. Is that there's an accusation laid out or a teaching laid out that Jesus did not rise from the grave. He didn't raise up and that he's still dead right now. The second is this, that Jesus did rise up from the grave and is alive with the Father preparing eternity for us now as he claimed to be doing. That's really the only choices that we have in considering who Jesus is and the work of salvation is that either he didn't raise up from the grave or that he did rise up from the grave. There's no in-between. It's just those two things. That reminds me of C.S. Lewis's famous quote where he says that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. There really aren't a whole lot of in-between positions that you can take when you consider Jesus biblically. He's either who he said he was and he did what he said he was going to do, or he's not and he didn't. There's really no in-between. 
And the, and the fact that there are people who want to try and, and sort of take a middle position, a middle ground of like, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I just don't listen to anything that he said. I, I'm not obedient to what the scripture says. That's an impossible position to take. You either do believe or you don't. He's either a liar and he's a lunatic for the things that he says, or he's actually who he said he was. He's Lord. So the implications of this are, are huge. Paul's confronting people who in the church were saying that there was no resurrection. When you're dead, you're dead. And, and what he'll end up quoting at the end of this section is a teaching that was being taught in the Corinthian church. Hey, eat and drink today, for tomorrow we die. This philosophy that even Solomon sort of talked about in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, thinking about you know, trying out the, the world and the goods that the world has to offer and the pleasure that you can find in the world. There's that philosophy that says, hey, there, there's nothing after this life. There's nothing we're going to attain, attain. So just eat and drink now. Enjoy what you can. Tomorrow you may die and there may be nothing else to experience after that. So just live it up while you can. This was the philosophy that was being taught in Corinth, in the church, because there was this belief that there was no resurrection. And so Paul begins to refute this. Now, the implications of there not being a resurrection are huge. If there is no resurrection, Jesus didn't rise up from the grave. Here's the four things that that means, according to what Paul says here in the scriptures. Read it again with me. In verse 13, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain where we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's the four things that are implied if Jesus did not raise up from the grave. Number one, that we who claim to believe in Jesus are living our lives in vain. If Jesus didn't rise up from the grave, if he didn't raise up to life after being buried, then we're living our life in vain. We don't have any purpose. If Jesus didn't rise up, then, then what are we doing? Why are we telling people about this, this guy, Jesus? Why are we gathering together and singing songs that glorify him or worship him? Why do we take bread and a cup and remember his broken body and shed blood? If Jesus didn't rise up from the grave, then we don't have any purpose in life. Secondly, if Jesus didn't rise up from the grave, then anybody who places their faith upon Jesus for salvation is a liar. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then we who have said that he did, that he did rise up, that he is alive, that he does have a good plan for your life, that if you believe upon him, your sins will be forgiven, we're liars, unless Jesus actually did rise up from the grave. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, the third implication is that we are lost eternally. 
because there is then no forgiveness for sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, Paul says we're dead in our sins. We're still in sin. There's been no solution given for the problem of sin, the separation between God and mankind, unless Jesus rose from the grave. And number four, the fourth implication if Jesus didn't rise from the grave is that we are lame. We have no power. We are, Paul says, of all people in the world to be pitied. Because as Christians who believe in the resurrection, we walk around with this sense of freedom, of forgiveness, of a future and a hope, the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us to to sanctify us and, and cause us to become more like Christ. But if that's not true, if the resurrection didn't happen, then none of that is real. We're lame. We have no power. That's what Paul says. Those four things, that's the implication that Paul says, if Christ didn't rise from the grave, if he didn't rise from the grave, then we are in trouble because those things are what's actually true. Those are powerful claims. But Paul refutes those claims as he continues on in verse 20. Verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all." If there was no resurrection, there was four implications, that those who believe in Jesus are living their life in vain, they're liars, they're lost eternally, and they're lame. They have no power. But here's what Paul answers back to that. If, in fact, Jesus did rise up from the grave, if the resurrection were true, then these three things are true as well. The things that are true if Jesus did rise from the grave is this, that sin kills. Sin kills, but Jesus' death and resurrection bring life. That's that whole thing that he's talking about in regard to comparing Adam to Jesus. Adam, who is our father in the flesh, is the one by which sin entered into our story and into our DNA. That we have death written into us physically. Because of Adam, sin kills. But if Jesus did rise up from the grave, if the resurrection is real, 
then in the same way that sin entered into humanity through a man, life enters into humanity by way of a man, the man Jesus Christ. Sin brings death. Death enters into, into our life through a man, Adam. Jesus deals with sin and death and therefore brings life into our reality. First life versus second life. The first Adam versus the second Adam. So if Jesus rose from the grave, if the resurrection is real, sin kills, but Jesus' death and resurrection bring life. The second thing that Paul says in regard to the fact that Jesus rose from the grave is that the second coming of Christ secures our eternal resurrection and life. The second coming of Christ secures our resurrection and life eternally. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the one that is actually risen first from death. He conquers death and rises up from the grave. God raises him up after he's been buried in the tomb for three days. And the promise to us who believe upon Jesus is that at his coming, when he returns, his second coming, those who have died will be resurrected and those who that are still alive will also be resurrected spiritually. That our lives then become Jesus's fully for eternity. So if Jesus did rise up from the grave, sin kills, but his death and resurrection bring life to us, real life, spiritual life. And his second coming, which he promised, which is only possible if he resurrected, secures for us our eternal resurrection and life. The third thing that's true is this, is that if Jesus did rise up from the grave, then sin is going to be subject to his authority. Sin is subjected under Jesus' authority and it paves the way for God to be God fully in this world physically as he is fully everywhere spiritually. God is God everywhere spiritually. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. All of those things. But here physically for us, if we are giving ourselves over to sin, if we are serving sin as our master, then physically, God is not in authority over our lives at that moment. We're giving authority to sin. But if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin and then rose from the grave to promise eternal life to us, and we give authority to him in that salvation, then God is God to us physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, even in the here and now, God is God everywhere. That's why Paul ends that section by saying that God may be all in all. Far too often we allow God to be God in specific areas of our life, but not in all areas of our life. How many of us allow God to be God on Sundays or Wednesday nights when we come to Bible study or when we do happen to crack open the Bible or when we do spend time in prayer? God's God in those moments. But how many of us have experienced places in our lives and experiences where 
we allow our anxiety to be God, where we allow our fear to be God, where we allow our dissatisfaction with the world to be our God, where we allow the seeking out of comfort and pleasure to be our God. In those moments, God is not God in all for us. He's only God in the places that we allow him to be God. And yet what Paul says is if the resurrection is true, if what Jesus did on the cross culminated in him not just dying for sin, but raising up to life, then then everything else is true as well. Our sin can be forgiven. We're promised eternal resurrection when Christ comes. And the fact that everything that is broken in this world will be in subjection to Christ so that God may be all in all. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was teaching them to say, Lord, be all for us. Be everything to us. The way that your kingdom is in heaven and the way that it's organized and structured for eternity We want to observe that and practice that now. Lord, we don't want to feel the effects of our sin now. We want to just be a part of your kingdom. When we come together to take of the table of fellowship, it's called the table of thanksgiving, the Eucharist. Paul told us already that when we take of the bread and the cup representing the body and blood of Jesus, we are proclaiming Jesus' death until he returns. God says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness for sin unless there's been a sacrifice of some kind. So for our sins to be dealt with, yeah, yep, Jesus needed to die. The blood needed to be shed on our behalf. We need to believe in that. But if that's where it ended, if Jesus' death was it, and, and that's where the story stopped, then what Paul says is that we would still be in our sin because the sacrifice would have been temporary, just like all of the goats and sheep and bulls that had been sacrificed in the Old Testament. But Jesus raising from the grave ensures for us that his sacrifice was once for all time. That even though he sacrificed himself, death didn't have the power to hold him, to contain him, to stop life from continuing. So when Jesus burst the bonds of death, not only did his sacrifice, not only was his sacrifice accepted by God as right for our sin, but his resurrection ensures that there is no more sacrifice needed that it's complete, it's done. The promise of life is given to us. So when we come to the table and we celebrate the Eucharist, when we come and say, Lord, thank you for sacrificing yourself on our behalf, we proclaim his death until he returns again. But here's the linchpin. Here's where resurrection is the most important thing for us. This is why the church revolves around resurrection. This is why when we're talking to people about Jesus, we're sharing our faith with with them in Jesus. It's not just that, man, if you believe in Jesus, you know, he's going to heal your heart. You know, if you believe in Jesus, then that thing, that relationship that was broken, you know, you could just trust Jesus to restore that relationship. 
You know, you, you know, you, you put your faith in Jesus, your anxiety will get, get dealt with, your depression will get dealt with, and, you know, maybe he'll even heal you physically. Or, or, hey, you know, when you believe upon Jesus, you get to be part of this really cool family, you know, these people who love each other and serve each other in the church. If that's what we're trying to attract people with to, to, to come to Jesus, we're missing out on the thing that actually has real power in what, what we're supposed to be sharing with them. When we come to the table of communion and remember the sacrifice of Christ, we're proclaiming his death until he returns. When we walk out the door of our gathering into the life that God has provided for us and called us to live as witnesses, testifying to the reality and truth of Jesus, we proclaim the hope and the promise of eternal resurrection for all who believe upon Jesus for salvation. Not instant peace, not prosperity, not riches, not healing. What we get to share about Jesus with people is this, that he rose from the grave and that I have the promise of life eternal. Because right now here in this world, just because we believe in Jesus, doesn't mean things are always going to go well. Doesn't mean that things are always going to work out the way that we think they should. Doesn't mean that we're going to receive quote-unquote material blessings in the way that some like to preach Jesus. That if you believe in Jesus, you have enough faith, and you sow enough seeds of faith, then God will bless you. Hey, hey, this thing that you're going through right now, get ready. It's, it's, you're on the verge of a breakthrough. This, God's setting you up for, for success and a breakthrough. That's what I keep hearing as I listen to the most popular preachers in America right now. Hey, this hard time you're going through, just get ready. You're not going to be able to handle the blessings God has for you if you have enough faith. That's not true. If the promise of riches or the evidence of material possessions or good health are the measure of how God loves his people, then God hated Job. If the measure of God's love for us and the reality of who Jesus is in the fact that we're never going to go through hard times or not receive persecution or we're going to have all of the relationships healed that we want to have relationships healed with, then God hated the Apostle Paul. If that's how we're measuring God's grace and love to us is through some form of comfort or success or pleasure. My goodness, the, the biblical record just doesn't match that. And so when we walk out the doors of the church, we've been reminded of the death of Christ. We proclaim the death of Christ. But when we walk out the doors into the world to give testimony and witness to who Jesus is, what we're proclaiming is everlasting life, eternal resurrection. So when I talk to somebody about Jesus, why is it that you believe in Jesus, Lukian? What is it that that gives you that, that I can't get from being a student of Martin Luther King Jr. or Mahatma Gandhi or Mother Teresa or some other benevolent person in life as a humanist? And I have to answer back to them, what do I get from Jesus that I don't get from the philosophies of goodness that exist in the world? It's eternal life. It's resurrection. All of those people, all of those philosophies are dead. But Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave. That's the promise that I have. That's the promise that you have, that we have, that Jesus is alive. And the promise is that we will be resurrected from our graves eternally.